0: This is God's word. In those days when again a a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people Uh, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up uh, the broken uh, pieces left over, seven baskets full. And uh, there were about uh, 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately, uh, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the districts of uh, Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began uh, to argue with him, uh, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and that in the scriptures we meet the Son of God. The only one in all of history who has truly lived a human life of love for you and love for neighbor. And uh, Lord, uh, we uh, pray that as we study his actions, his words, that we would be drawn to both trust in him, to receive his love, and also to obey him, uh, to live under his authority. And so we pray that uh, you would instruct us by your holy word um, through the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our topic today is compassion. And this is uh, an important topic because compassion is one of the strongest cultural forces in our uh, culture today. It has a huge power to make people act. And uh, maybe more traditional cultures that, you know, people are motivated by, you know, seeking honor or glory or even wealth and all those things are present in our culture as well. But in our culture, if you are not perceived as caring for the weak, the poor, the marginalized or the oppressed, there's possibly nothing else in our culture that, you know, would have the power to shame someone like the force of compassion. And so how should we think about that as, as Christians? Well, um, I think that there are two temptations that we need to avoid as God's people. Um, the first temptation is letting the world define compassion for us. And uh, whatever, whenever morality is defined by humans and not by God, it always becomes destructive, uh, more destructive than life-giving. And that's true with compassion. I mean, kind of the... The most uh, glaring example of that is the many communist revolutions of the last century that were all done in the name of compassion for the lower classes, and they were murderous and and, um, absolutely brutal. The world does not know how to define compassion and can't define compassion for us. But I think the other temptation is being reactionary, against the world, you know, so for example, someone might think that, oh, you know, our culture is always letting people off the hook uh, for taking responsibility, playing the victim card, and uh, it's true that our culture can give a godlike status to someone who is a victim, but it's also true that there are many people who truly are victims, and at the center of our gospel is Jesus, who was unjustly crucified, and ever since then, Christians throughout history have had given a regard and dignity to the victim. The only reason our culture even cares about victims is because of the gospel. Um, And so if we shut off, anytime someone mentions the word victim, we're not reflecting the character of God in the scriptures. And what we don't realize is whenever you react to something, then you are still being controlled by it. So if you do the opposite of woke culture, You're still being defined by woke culture. You're still taking your cues from woke culture. So compassion needs to be neither defined by the world nor lost in reaction to it, and it needs to be ruled by the truly compassionate one who is Jesus Christ. And so today, I'd like to uh, look at these stories, here from Jesus, and you'll notice that uh, it starts there in verse 1 by saying, in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. In these verses, we see Jesus' compassion in action, and I think he's an important model for us, especially in, this, in our moment. So, so today, I want to answer three questions for us from this passage, this is what they are. What does compassion do? What does compassion resist? And how do we become people of true compassion? What does compassion do? What does compassion resist? And how do we become people of true compassion? I think it's a very important topic in our cultural moment. My hope is that Jesus would make us a truly compassionate church community. So three questions for us, and the first is this. What does compassion do? And three answers I want to highlight from this passage. So first, compassion is considerate of people's weakness. Compassion is gentle and considerate of people's weakness. And Jesus says in verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And that little phrase, they've been with me, shows how personal Jesus' time has been with these people for three days. You know, people can come up to him and they can talk to him and he's teaching them and they're asking him questions. It's a very personal interaction that he's been having. And so he goes on in verse 3 and says it, And if I send them away hungry to their homes... They will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And so here we just see something considerate about Jesus. He's aware that these people are faint, and he doesn't want to push them too hard. What a relief that Jesus is that way, that he recognizes when we're faint and doesn't want to push us too hard. And some of you may be here this morning and say, I feel faint, maybe in your faith, in your Family and your work environment or whatever, where I'm just worn down, I'm worn down emotionally, and I just can't be pushed too hard right now. And though though Jesus calls us to live holy lives, to serve him, and to sacrifice, he never loses that softening of compassion towards our weakness. He's always that way towards us. What a blessing. And and so compassion is considerate of our weakness. And you know, one example of this is, um, is the rule of, of St. Benedict it was written in the 6th century, and and it, the rule was basically an ordered life where the, uh, brothers would come and live in a monastery and they, they lived according uh, to this rule. And it was, it's lasted now 1,500 years, And but really for the next 1,000 years after it was started, it, they played a huge role in the, the building of, of Christendom and the, the cultural transformation that, that happened during those 1,000 years. And you say, well, what made Benedict's rule so enduring? You know, it's very regimented. The monks had to work hard. They had to pray and study. But throughout the rule, and this is my impression reading it, is it makes all these little accommodations to people's weakness. You know, if someone's sick, okay, we kind of modify the rule for them in this way. If someone's weak in some ways, you try to make the rule so it, it fits to them. It's a very regimented life that's just softened by a gentleness of compassion. The way of Christ is considerate and gentle of people's weakness. And that needs to be the culture of our community for following him. And that's, you know, that's exactly how Psalm 103 describes compassion. Uh, it, this may be some of your, one of your favorite verses from Psalm 103 where it describes the Lord this way. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You know, maybe you had a, a father that was not, never compassionate, to your weakness. Well, your Father in heaven's not that way. He's, he's gentle to us in our weakness. So first, compassion is a gentleness toward and a consideration of people's weakness. The second thing about compassion is that compassion uses the gifts of the whole church. Compassion uses the gifts of a whole community, the whole church. It's not just the work of one person, and that's True even in the case of Jesus. You know, so Jesus sees all these people and they're faint and they're weak. And so then it says in verse four, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with uh, with bread here in this desolate place? And And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. When Jesus serves and loves and cares for people, it's through his disciples. It's through us. Compassion is an act of the disciples, and even Jesus does not care for people by himself. And this is something, you know, I have learned early on as a pastor in our, in our church. Our, our home groups have been an important part of our life since the beginning of the church. We, the last couple of years, we've not had home groups during COVID, but they've just been starting again this year. And, uh, you know, home groups are... Men and women and children, they come together and they eat together, they pray together, they talk about their life together. And I know for countless times, people have gone through difficult seasons and they just say, my home group has played such an important role. And it wasn't just one person. It was a group of people that were around me that could pray for me. They'd bring me a meal. They'd invite me over. They'd listen to what I was going through. I didn't feel alone. And so that's the picture that Jesus gives to us of how can compassion happens. And some of you are very compassionate people. You know, you feel it very deeply when you hear that someone's struggling and they're going through something you just your, your heart just aches for them and you say, I want to do this. But that can result in taking all of their needs upon yourself. I know I, you know, as a pastor, you're going to have that tendency to fall into that. If we are going to be a community defined by com- compassion, it has to be a work of the whole community. We should envision that Jesus, who knows everyone in Bellingham and Whatcom County, is seeing certain people that he's showing compassion on, and he's going to bring them here. And uh, uh, Diane Langberg is a Christian psychologist who, who works with trauma survivors, and in the introduction to her book, Suffering in the Heart of God, this is what she says. Given the numbers of suffering and traumatized, let me reiterate that the trauma of this world is one of the primary mission fields of the 21st century. It is one of the supreme opportunities before the church today. Our head, it's Christ, left glory and came down to this traumatized world. He became flesh like us. He literally got in our skin. He did not numb or fleece the atrocities of this world or of our hearts. Will we, his body, also leave our spaces, our chapels, and enter the trauma of terrified and shattered humanity in the name of Jesus? So compassion for shattered human lives is the heart of our, our mission, and, and none of us can take it on by ourselves. We have to do it together. It's a shared, shared burden. So two things we see. Compassion is considerate and gentle towards people and their weakness, and it's, it uses the gifts of the whole community that we are all doing together. Okay? The third thing is that compassion obeys the direction of Jesus. Compassion obeys the direction of Jesus. And what I mean by that is compassion brings people into obedience to Christ. Being under Jesus' care means also being willing to obey him. And you see that there in verse 6 where it says, And he directed the crowd. And in verse 8 it says, And they ate and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over and seven baskets full. And uh, there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. That's the same word that's used earlier in verse 3. And if I send them away hungry, it's showing Jesus has control over this crowd. They do what he says. And even though he cares for them and he has compassion for them, they also obey his authority. And they still had to walk home. They still had to go about their lives. And, you know, I do think that Jesus' compassion had an element of strengthening the weak and the faint. They didn't just stay there with them. They had to go back into their homes and into their lives and into their families. And uh, and this should be our goal that we don't want to keep people weak. You know what I mean? Like when people come in their weakness, we need uh, compassion and gentleness, but the goal is to strengthen them. And there's a, a, you know, a book on caring for the poor that our deacons read called When Helping Hurts. And In the opening illustration of of, uh, when helping Hurts*, it describes a missionary who's in a slum in Kenya, and uh, there's a woman there who had recently become a Christian, and uh, she'd been saved out of kind of all this, you know, witch doctor kind of uh, uh, pagan life, and her life had been transformed, but she'd gotten this infection, and she was going to die, and she needed an $8 uh, penicillin, you know, injection or something like that and so this missionary is American he says eight bucks I could save this person's life no problem pays eight bucks saves her life and he says that on the flight home he realized what a missed opportunity that was because even though eight dollars would have been a lot more expensive for the people in this slum they could have put it brought it together and he could have gone to the church community there and say hey we need eight dollars to pay, buy the penicillin for your sister who just became a Christian. And they could have pulled that money, and they could, have, they could have solved that problem. And because it's his sense of need that I want to feel like a rescuer, that he bypassed that opportunity. And so the way to avoid this is to make sure that all of our compassion is strictly done in obedience to Christ. It's not for us. It's for him. And actually, I mentioned the rule of Benedict uh, and in the chapter on caring for the sick. This is, what, this is what it says. Care of the sick must rank above all and before all else so that they may be truly served as, uh, as Christ. For he said, I was sick and you visited me. And uh, what you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, uh, you did for me. Let the sick, for their part, bear in mind that they are served out of honor for God. And let them not, by their excessive demands, distress their brothers who serve them. It's very interesting that both the people who are serving and the people who are being served understand that this compassion is done in obedience to Christ. There's no no entitlement. There's nothing that's owed. But it's obedience to Christ. And so this really leads to a second point. That compassion cannot be simply responding to the demands of those who are in need. Compassion is about obedience to God. And so especially in our day, we need to first ask, well, what does compassion do? Okay, it's, it's gentle to people in their, in their weakness. And it's gathering the, whole, the gifts of the whole community to, to serve one another as we all are in different, at different times in our lives are in need. And all of that we do together in obedience to Christ. But we also need to ask, what does compassion resist? That's our second question. What does compassion resist? And I want to point out two things from this passage, okay? First, compassion resists the demands of the Pharisees. Compassion resists the demands of the Pharisees. And uh, the next episode in this passage, you see there in verse 11, says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And so the Pharisees demand from Jesus a sign, and he refuses to give them what they demand of him. Now, in our culture, generally it's, it's the progressive movement in our culture that people identify with compassion, caring for the poor or the marginalized or the oppressed. And I want to draw that there are some connections between the Pharisees and the progressive movement in in our culture. Let me just point out a few. Maybe you would not naturally identify a progressive and a Pharisee, but here, here are a few parallels. Okay. First of all, they're both political movements. Uh, the Pharisees were very politically engaged. And I know if you read through the New Testament, you might think that nobody liked the Pharisees. That was not true. They were very well respected by the people. Uh, it was a very much a populist movement. The second thing is that the Pharisees were also a revolutionary movement. You know, a revolution is when an oppressed people overthrows the existing authorities, and the Pharisees were zealous for a revolt against Rome. They'd been an oppressed people for centuries under the Romans, and we too live in a very uh, revolutionary uh, age where authority in every part of society is being challenged, whether it's in the family, in the school, in church, in law, in in the sciences, and in medicine. And so there are these parallels between the Pharisees and progressives that they're both political and revolutionary. But maybe the strongest parallel is that the uh, Pharisees were committed to highly regulating people's speech and actions. Around Pharisees, you were constantly wondering if you're saying or doing the right thing. Uh, They were self-righteous, judgmental, and controlling. They wanted power. And so when the Pharisees demand a sign, they're asking for Jesus to display his power. We want to see your power. Are you going to come with your power and help us? And Jesus refuses. Jesus' compassion does not adhere to every demand of an oppressed people. And in fact, Jesus has just done this sign. You know, they want a sign. He just did a sign. He just fed 4,000 people. It was an act of compassion, and they don't care. Because it's not compassion they care about, it is power they care about. Now, a couple notes, okay? First of all, I don't think this means that Jesus didn't care or have compassion for the Pharisees. You know, the word for compassion, uh, is in that's used earlier in the passage, about, like, your guts, like, you know, your insides turn over. You know, when you really feel for someone, that's what happened to Jesus. And you can see in verse 12, when they bring him this question, it says in verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. Jesus is experiencing grief about the Pharisees. And this can be only be because he cares about his people. They are his people. And I should also say that I know that, um, you know, saying that uh, the um, political, revolutionary, and controlling nature of the Pharisees has its parallels in, in the progressive movement of our day, it certainly can have its parallels also in conservative religious Communities. Conservatives can often see themselves as marginalized, uh, oppressed people seeking political power who also can highly regulate people's speech and behavior and, you know, make suffocating environments. Jesus is known as the greatest paragon of compassion in human history, and yet no one made demands of him. When people were weak or marginalized, he had mercy on them, but they never took a posture of Jesus now needs to do what I tell him. He would absolutely not tolerate that. And compassion has become a force that is regulating um, much of life in our culture, and it regulates who you can and can't associate with. And this is very similar to the kind kind of highly regulated culture promoted by the Pharisees, and people feared the disapproval of the Pharisees, And so this kind of compassion has to be resisted. So first, compassion resists the demands of the Pharisees. Second, compassion also resists the ignorance of the disciples. Compassion uh, resists the ignorance of the disciples. And after Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, Uh, Jesus uh, says a parable to his disciples. He says, you need to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples take it literally. They don't really understand that he's saying this parable. And so this is how Jesus responds in verse 17. He says, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And then down in verse 21, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? Jesus is confronting the lack of understanding in his disciples. And what this means is it is not enough that we just feel deeply for people. And it's very common that well-intentioned help is actually harmful. It's not what people need. We have to understand God. We have to understand human persons as physical and spiritual beings and understand how they are. And we have to understand the world. We have to have knowledge in order to have compassion towards people. And, you know, C.S. Lewis gives an example like this where he says, you know, you imagine someone has just come out of the Sahara Desert and they're dying of thirst. They've had no food. They're about to starve. And you welcome them. You say, oh, I'm so glad you made it. And I... I'm gonna, I can't wait. I can help you. I'm going to bring you some food. And you say, you know what? I'm going to make the best meal you have ever had in your life. You make, maybe you make a mistake and a, and a pile of mashed potatoes. And they eat it, and they die. <laughs> because you can't—they've got to be gradually brought— you didn't understand how to care for a starving person. And so even though you're trying to be compassionate and generous, you're actually killing them. You actually need knowledge in order to love someone. Feelings of empathy are not enough for loving and caring for people. You know, think about that, of course, with, with doctors. I, I, I remember when our, our youngest uh, two were born, we had twins. Our fourth and fifth kids were twins. And when we were in the hospital, they would just been born. Our daughter Ada was one, years old and, uh, one year old, and she, uh, she tripped and severed her lip on a toy cabinet. So she had to go into the emergency room and I leave the birthing area over to the emergency room and, uh, and there's a cosmetic surgeon who was on call who was clearly not happy that he had to come in and work on my daughter who's screaming and blood's going everywhere and I almost fainted and the nurse is having me sit down. And, uh, and the, the nurse is like, yeah, I know he's kind of a jerk, but he's the one that you want sewing up her lip. And who is the one who I want sewn on my lip? The guy who's good or the guy who's nice and not good? Well, you know, ideally you want the guy who's got the nice bedside manner and is good at what he does, but knowledge matters for caring for human beings. Empathetic feelings are not helpful in and of themselves, and our culture thinks if it feels compassionate, then you had better do it, whether there is any evidence it will cause harm Or good. So compassion is complicated. The Bible celebrates a gentle consideration for other people's weakness, and we should be kind and patient, generous, welcoming people in, feeling, weeping with those who weep. We should care for people as a community, but we do it in obedience to Christ's direction to us. Because also there are aspects of our culture's understanding of compassion that have to be resisted. we we resist both the demands of the Pharisees and the ignorance of the disciples. And so that leads to our final question, how do we become people of true compassion? How do we become people of true compassion? And the way that Jesus fills the world with compassionate people is he shows compassion to us, and then he sends us out that we would show to other people the compassion that Jesus showed to us. And Uh, When he feeds these 4,000 people, he's expecting that they're going to go back to their villages and hopefully they're a little more generous in their homes to their neighbors because they've experienced his love in their lives. And this passage is actually very similar uh, to what we do here every every week in worship. You look at verse 6 again, where it says, And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them. And gave them to his disciples and set them before the people. The verbs there in that verse are exactly what happens during the Lord's Supper when Jesus starts this meal. It's exactly what Jesus does for us here every Sunday. And so, how do we become a people of true compassion? We become a people of true compassion through worshiping Jesus, the truly compassionate one. And what happens when we meet with Jesus week in and week out for worship? Well, the first thing we experience every week is his gentleness towards our weakness. We confess our sins and he welcomes us and he washes us and he assures us of his loves and he brings us in and he binds us together as a community and he he has us live under his word and we all direct our lives according to his word and he challenges the Pharisaism in us and he gives us knowledge so that we can love people with wisdom. And so how do we become a people of compassion? By meeting with the compassionate one week after week. And so just as Jesus' compassion fed 4,000 people all those years ago with bread, Jesus still today is feeding hundreds of millions of people around the world with the bread of his own body that he might fill the world with disciples of his compassion. And so may that be so with us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you as your people and we thank you that you gather us here and, and you, you know the ways that each of us, we are faint, like the crowds in this story. Uh, we are weak and we're so grateful that the true God is one who is compassionate and gentle and that you, you know our frame. You remember that we're dust, and you gather us here in love, and and Lord, we ask you that we truly would become a place of compassion. We do ask you that you would bring shattered lives here, and that we as a community would receive those lives with both love and truth, and Lord, we pray that you would give us courage that we would trust you in our compassion we would obey you in our compassion and not follow every demand of the world around us but we would follow every demand that you place on us and that's because we trust you and we believe that you are good and loving and so we ask this in Jesus name